Welcome back to the Hell to Sell podcast. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I finally got rid of Luigi. I've muzzled him up. He's stuck in the corner and he promised he's going to be quiet for the next 45 minutes. God willing. This episode is a replay of a live event that we recently held with two unique humans in the startup space that have achieved crazy success. Now, it wasn't success that was done overnight. The three things you're going to learn on this episode is the importance of strategic partnerships and how to set them up, the challenges and risks of partnerships and the marketing growth strategies that led to this epic success of these two diverse entrepreneurs. Now let's dive right in and get into the show. So I'd love to welcome our esteemed guests, uh, Dom and Judy. So they, for those who don't know these two amazing humans, uh, they are amazing entrepreneurs in the space, uh, especially within in Australia. They're two giants in the technology space. So let's just, let's just put it at that. So we've got Judy Anderson Firth, the group CEO of Euphemia. And joining her is uh, Dominic Pym, an entrepreneur and technologist. Uh, most commonly known for founding Up, which is Australia's leading digital bank amongst other ventures. And together, uh, they've they've formed something quite unique with Euphemia. So it's been a testament to their commitment to sharing knowledge and opportunities within the startup ecosystem. But I'm gonna hand it over to to Judy and Dom. First, let's can you share a little bit about the origins of Femia, what it is, how it works, and then we can take it from there. Thanks, David. And yeah, it's awesome to be here. Uh, and if anyone's tuning in um, and listening in and Dom and I don't actually address like your most, you know, pressing question around growth. Uh, if we don't cover it today, of course, you can reach out to us on socials um, and LinkedIn or, or any other way you can find us on the internet. We'd be happy happy to help out. Uh, so Euphemia is the family office for Dom Pim, uh, who is, as David said, most well known for being the co-founder of Up and also Pin Payments and several other businesses, including a record label. If you're lucky enough, you might hear that story from Dom one day. Uh, but Euphemia is on a mission to go big and grow home. Uh, we're really passionate about highlighting Australian innovation and we can't do that al- ourselves. And so uh, growth hacking and all of the things that we'll talk about today, we not just apply as advice to the founders within our portfolio, the investments that we make, but also on ourselves. So happy to reveal what we do at Euphemia to make that awesome and also some of the things that we, we've learned and, and that we share along the way with founders. But more broadly, the family office, we invest in fintech to try and help fix money, climate tech to try and help fix the planet, women-led startups or really any founder from a disadvantaged background who hasn't had equal access to opportunity, and startup infrastructure, so the picks and shovels of the tech sector that can help us grow faster. More broadly, the group also has a property portfolio, a share portfolio, and a foundation to help people in need. Uh, Dom, did I miss anything that you think? No, no, you got everything. I I thought I might uh, add a sort of different context is – why are we qualified to talk about growth? Um, uh, you know, from my perspective, I've been I've founded a bunch of different companies and been involved in many different startups, probably a dozen or more over the last 25 years. But we also have invested in probably, uh, you know, 50 or 100 different companies that are all, uh, you know, struggling with the same questions around growth. So I feel like uh, in terms of the companies that we started, in terms of the companies that we advise and, and do strategy days and join their boards or their advisory boards, and then also in terms of the, um, the companies that we're investing in, I think all of those are areas where we can add some value. And probably one of the ones that um, is quite elusive is selling to large enterprises, you know, big public companies partnering, uh, you know, for success through through large established channels. So, yeah, as we go through, maybe I'll try and uh, angle some of the things towards that rather than um, 
uh, just talking about ourselves all the time. Perfect, perfect. Well, that's a great introduction. Uh, thank you both. So uh, I'd love to begin with, you know, you, you're managing such a diverse portfolio. Uh, how are you growing, Ephemia? Uh, how are you attracting businesses, you know, to, to come to yourselves? There's a plethora of, you know, firms out there that, you know, claim to do certain things and, and basically money and expertise uh, to startups. But how do you attract um, amazing startups to, to Ephemia? Maybe I'll just start Judy by saying that like Judy's the boss. She, she, she's the CEO, so she probably could give a really good answer. But just from my perspective, I wanted to say that um, it's the same in the companies that we started or the companies that we invested in is that we're nearly always recommending uh, for people to have product-led growth rather than sales and marketing-led growth. And it's not that the two um, uh, compete with each other. But they're actually complementary. But you can't really be selling or marketing or growing uh, a business or a product without it being awesome. So our, you know, the thing that we most encourage our portfolio companies and the companies that sort of um, come to us, the thing that we most encourage them to do is to build a great product and build a, you know, try and find that elusive product market fit um, and, and create something that people want because the largest channel to market for B2B and B2C is word of mouth. If people think that you're awesome, if you're the highest rated thing or if uh, you've got a great, you know, strong network of word of mouth because your product is awesome, then that's going to absolutely help you in your marketing growth and sales uh, channels, techniques, tactics, fundamentals, the whole, the whole lot. So, so I think I just want to start by saying that is that I think, you know, having a really great product and then delivering what your customers want, finding that product market fit, that's the number one. That's the biggest sort of foundational piece. And then for us, that was actually just communicating who Euphemia is and cr- like generally uh, being transparent. So what happens in a family office? Uh, what goes on behind the scenes? Uh, what value are we able to add to other companies? What experience do we have? How can we actually help those companies to grow and be successful? And then what we find is that a bunch of the people on the call today will be from our portfolio companies because they're very excited and they go and tell their mates and then their mates come to us and say, Dom, Judy, you know, we're looking for money. We're looking for advice. We're looking for partnerships. Uh, yeah, how can you help? And so, yeah, I really think that's sort of, for me, the core number one fundamental is get the product right uh, and deliver what the customer wants and then worry about the sort of... Um, you know, uh, sort of feedback loops and, and, and other sort of tactics that actually help you then uh, grow that. I couldn't agree more. Um, and if anyone on this call has read The Lean Startup by Eric Reese, like it's really obvious in there. You know, he articulates a handful of engines of growth, you know, that, that founders can use to test and grow their product or service in market with customers. And word of mouth is like the holy grail. Because you can't pay for it, right? Well, you pay for it maybe in writing code and sending, you know, people out to talk to customers. You pay for it in other ways, but it really is exactly what Dom said. Like when people talk about product-led growth nowadays, like it's a new term that's come about in the last like maybe five years or so. But it really is just word of mouth because when the product is actually solving a real customer need, something that someone is super frustrated by and your product or service solves that for them, then they're so happy to tell their friends, their family, their colleagues because they have had a problem solved for them. So, yeah, you can't buy word of mouth and it is absolute gold. Um, it is one of the reasons why it was so successful, it is so successful. Um, and then everything else is really supplementary. Paid advertising, you have, you know, a side effect of using the product where a new customer will discover your product because they've used another product and it just so happens that, your product makes sense to use with that one, which is where we can talk about partnerships and the network effect and how that becomes important. 
um, or repeat use, right? Like you, you know, you have it and that's where we get into lifetime value. So totally agree with Dom. Like the number one hack is just be obsessed with your customer and build something that they actually love. That, that's both great points there. And, you know, you, you did mention there, uh, Judy, that word of mouth is is the holy grail. It's, it's the warmest lead that you'll get. It can be uh, the cheapest acquisition channel uh, for a business, whether a, a technology company or a service business. Has there been anything that you've seen through either the business you're involved with personally or the investments that you've made of a way to actually manufacture uh, strong referrals uh, without, you know, your typical sort of Dropbox method of giving away free product for, for referral? Well, what have you seen work amazingly well? And then on the on the flip side, what have you seen, you know, fail in, in terms of trying to manufacture referrals? That's a bit yeah. that we always try to do. Yeah, I'll give one example from um, my startup Victoria days. So prior to teaming up with Dom and building Euphemia, I was the CEO of Startup Victoria, which is Australia's largest startup community. It's now known as the Startup Network and it has 60,000 members in the community. So it's the largest one in the country. Uh, and one of the programs that we built during my time was something called Growth Club. Uh, it doesn't really exist today, but um, back then it was pretty awesome. It's how I met Dom. And that was a peer-to-peer founder support program where if you were a later stage founder with at least a million dollars in annual recurring revenue, you could team up with other founders and have monthly dinners where you talk about your problems. There's no salespeople in the room, no sponsors, no partners. It's purely just peer-to-peer popping the hood and helping solve each, other, each other's problems based on your experiences. And there'd be sort of bi-monthly education events with experts where you can bring, you know, your senior people to those and learn on, on particular topics that were important. Um, and something that was important for that, like word of mouth was absolutely the way to do that because founders trust other founders. You know, they trust the recommendation of other founders and there's so many programs, there's so many events that you can go to in the startup community. It's one thing for Startup Victoria to tell you that it's awesome. And you should come along. It's a total other thing for a founder to say, hey, I went to this awesome thing. I actually got a lot of value because the time coins are the most valuable for founders. It's not actually about how much the membership costs. It's, you know, should I spend my time doing this or should I spend my time on my business? Um, And so what worked really well for us was baking in like basically ownership from those customers and what we call them members uh, of that product. And so they co-created that with us and they actually created the rules for who should be let in and who shouldn't be let in because it was an invite only. And when it came time to onboard new members, the members actually had to find new members that they wanted to bring, that they wanted to learn from. We'd support them in the back end with all of the logistics, but they had to nominate who they were. If they knew them, they'd have to provide an e-intro for us and we could do the rest. Uh, and so having that baked into, I guess, the process of onboarding and the rules of how the product worked um, was a really great tool for us. That's something that worked quite well. I might just add something there, like from from my perspective, I'll talk about two companies that I started. <laughs> so um, I saw uh, Grant Bissett on the uh, on the participant list. Grant and I started a company called Pin Payments, and it was the first all-in-one payment API in Australia. So it was like Stripe in Australia before Stripe. Um, and you know, I think it was 2011 when we started the business, um, and, and there wasn't a lot like it. You know, PayPal sort of had had their huge success. And then Braintree was sort of, you know, getting started. And, and at the time, the Collison brothers literally had just started Stripe. Um, I think they were maybe, a, you know, a year or a couple of years in. And so they didn't have any presence in Australia. So for us, it was about getting market share really quickly. 
And then the second one I'll talk about is 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 up. Um, and I think um, it's pretty obvious that you know up has just announced recently we have over eight hundred thousand customers. We should have a million customers, you know, this year, and uh, and be well on track to um, uh, to be not only the fastest but uh, fastest growing bank, but also the the largest bank for under thirty fives in Australia. So both of those are big success stories in the um, let's say retail consumer growth space. And then um, what's not obvious is that both Up and Pin, as well as other companies I've started like ClickGround, for example. Um, all of those companies had B2B relationships. So I'll just touch on them briefly, um, just to add to what Beauty was saying. So the first thing is, if you're going to be, um, to answer your question, if you're going to be building a consumer um, customer base and you wanted to uh, have a hack or a, you know, a guide or some way to do it, um, Grant and I used to talk a lot about the onion. And the onion has a core and then all these different layers. And so if you start with the core, what is the core? The two founders were the core and then the employees. So we all started testing the product and eating our own dog food ourselves. Then we went out to our family and friends and our family and friends group wasn't very big. It was, you know, just maybe a 20, 25 people, whatever. But then from there, we went out to um, uh, to, to a, a small group of alpha, um, you know, really early stage uh, customers that wanted to test the product and give feedback and, and really participate in the product. And so that went to sort of maybe 250 people. And then we started thinking about the channels that we wanted to go through to go beyond that. And so when you start with your staff and then you go to your family and friends and then you go to uh, the early adopters, maybe a specific community. For us, a pin, it was developers. And obviously for ARP, it wasn't developers. It was uh, people that were interested in financial services, financial literacy, banking, you know, Excel spreadsheets, you know, that sort of stuff. People that are passionate about money. Um, and, and, and then the onion slowly grows. Now, the final piece of the onion I mean, it's never ending, but, but you know, the, the sort of final layer that you want for your hack is uh, it's channels. And so what we did at PIN is we partnered with organizations like, for example, Perpetual, you know, the oldest financial institution in Australia, or NAB, you know, a significant, you know, one of the big four banks. And those partnerships actually opened up channels, but also developers. So by getting in with the development community or getting in with the development network, then those developers were able to spread the word through the network. Now, the cost of acquisition is exceptionally low, as you mentioned. But also, um, sort of the re re referral kudos is very high. So if you're just going to pay for referrals, then you end up with a really poor quality customer. So moving to up, we did something similar at up where we started with the staff and then we moved to our friends and family and then we moved to an alpha and then a beta and we sort of ended up with two and a half thousand people in this sort of beta product before we very quickly, in a matter of months, went from two and a half thousand to 30,000 customers. And then within seven months, we went to 100,000 customers. Now, 100,000 customers was our long-term goal. We thought that we could get there one day eventually, and we did it in less than one year, uh, nearly half a year. So, so that was quite an extraordinary uh, growth curve. Um, but what, what, uh, what we did there was we partnered with organizations that you would never have heard of before, Mastercard, you know, Bendigo Bank, Apple, Google, Wires, Afterpay. And so what we did is we partnered with all these amazing channel partners that were able to amplify not only our product, but our brand and our growth. And so I think when you're looking at sort of some sort of hack, if you like, certainly in the consumer space, you can you can start with those early adopters and those those uh, friends and family and those um, you know low hanging fruit, and then use that network as a way to grow very quickly. But as it starts getting to scale, when you sort of don't feel like that word of mouth is going to continue going, then the partnerships and the channels actually sort of start kicking in, and then you're looking at B two B type stuff. So in the grain exchange, for example, we did a partnership with the largest bulk handler, and the bulk handler stores the grain. And then puts it on boats and stuff. And so in the in the agricultural industry, uh, they're the biggest player. And so we went and met with the three biggest players, and then partnered with the biggest one. 
And within a short period of time, we had 75% of all the farmers on the east coast of Australia using our technology. And that's because it became almost the default technology to use because it was through that B2B channel. So yeah, hopefully that gives people a little bit of an insight, a bit of a framework. And, and you can do that in any business. You, you notice that I just mentioned three different businesses, pin payments, um, uh, up and and the, the grain exchange, all, all, all three of those are very different businesses operating in different segments, different industries with different products. But the same framework is useful for that early stage growth. Now, Dom, I want to I want to pull a thread on what you're saying there, right? Because you know you talk about some big names uh, partnering up there. One, I want to I want to know how did you get in there? What was the process like? Um, what was that? Because you, you, you're selling, becoming a, a partnering for, with a brand such as Apple or Mastercard. You, you're selling. There's a big process there. So what would happen? You know, to just to take a bit of uh, a few steps forward on this conversation would be you're selling to an individual. You know, the, whose roles in partnerships within Mastercard, they then need to sell it internally. And then, so I want to understand what that journey is, is like for you, and then how you activate it because it's one thing to to establish a partnership with a brand, then how do you actually make it work? You know, I've been victim of set up partnerships, think it's going to be great. Uh, they've got a mass network, 50,000 people, and then don't get one sale from it. How did you make it work? Yeah, no, that's good. Two good questions. So maybe starting with the type of partner. So you can't really partner with Apple. Uh, it's very rare. And so we never did any sort of formal partnership with them. What we did is we identified areas where there were opportunities for new product. So Apple is a product company. So we were over at WWDC, which is their sort of developer conference, uh, you know, worldwide developer conference, they call it. And we were over there and we saw some new things that were coming down the pipeline. And so we approached Apple here in Australia and said, hey, we want to bring uh, what's called instant issuance, which is a, a way to instantly put a debit card into your Apple wallet. We, we, we want to be the first bank in Australia to do that. And by pestering them and telling them that we were smart and we had software developers and we, you know, we had these partnerships in place, they actually did a um, uh, did some work with us in order for us to be the first bank to launch that in Australia. And it's hugely successful and now every other bank. But what came out of that was Google then approached us and said, hey, can you do the same thing for the Google wallet? And then Samsung approached us and said, can you do the same thing for the Samsung wallet? We ended up with Garmin and Fitbit and everybody. And so we became the first bank with all of those different wallets. And then lots of other banks, you know, obviously followed. But um, but that all started because we recognized that that particular opportunity with Apple was a product opportunity and they don't do partnerships and they won't let you call them a partner and you've got to sign so many NDAs and all sorts of things. So what we did there was we sort of hacked that uh, corporate relationship by saying what's important to them. Important to them is getting their product into market early and finding some partner who can do that. So that's that's what we did there. With uh, Google, it was actually um, in order for them to be competitive they wanted to launch their version of the wallet. And at the time, it was either Google Pay or Android Pay or Google Wallet. It kept changing its name. But we um, uh, we, we approached them and said, well, you know what we did with Apple? We could do the same thing with Google. And then they said, right, well, what we want to do is allocate a certain amount of marketing budget to that to make sure it's successful. To your second question is that they said, it's no good building that technology, that product, and then being like Apple. Like Apple launches a product in market and it just goes bunta, they say, you know, it just goes nuts. Um, but then Google came along and said, right, we've got a similar product, but we want to ensure that it's successful. So they put marketing dollars behind it. So what we did was we negotiated a very simple sort of hack with them is that we said for every $5 that we put in to paying a, a referral bonus to a customer, can you put in $5? And we went, you know, five bucks each. Now, again, 
um, th- th- those sort of relationships end up in NDAs and they're private and confidential and it's difficult to talk about the details of those relationships. But what we did is we recognized that they wanted to back it with marketing dollars and that we also had some marketing dollars. So we thought, well, actually, if we can find a mutually beneficial relationship, we can grow the wallet business for them and we can grow the customer base for us. Uh, and that's actually quite complementary. I'd say it'd be like quite different with different participants. In the case of the grain exchange, they wanted to um, create a competitive differentiator with the other big players. So there's three big players and there's some minor players. And uh, they, they wanted to create a differentiator so they they were upgrading their systems. And I used to work at SAP. And so I said, well, why don't I come along for free? Like we used to charge thousands of dollars a day to do SAP consulting. But I said, I'll come along for free, have a look at your SAP systems and then give you some advice. And so we looked at those systems and took a few people with us, some software developers, and then we came up with a bunch of ways where they could improve their um, their project that they were doing for their software installation and ways that we could integrate with it. And then we pitched them like a reverse pitch. We pitched back to them to basically say, so essentially they didn't pay us for us to then do a pitch back to them. And then we basically said, we could integrate with your systems and create a direct link to the farmer. How does that sound? And they're like, oh, that's amazing. None of our competitors have that. We would be the first in market with that. And so we sort of got them hooked by this idea of being first in market. Now, all those examples I gave, Apple, Google, and uh, that was GrainCorp, all three of them were to be first in market. Now, we always say to people that being first in market is really critical, but actually being best is more important. So it's no good, as you said in the first question, how do you do it? You've got to have the guts and the confidence and the curiosity to actually approach the partner and then get rejected 100 times before somebody says yes. But then the second thing is you need to find ways to ensure that it's successful. So we would go out of our way to run events, to uh, do uh, EDMs, uh, to uh, send messages like push notifications through our app, um, to have as many communication points as we could with our growing customer base in order to ensure success. And what did we do with the marketing money, say, for example, in the Google case? Well, we spent it with Google. So we said, okay, well, we'll get money from Google and we'll spend it with Google, right? And so we actually spent it on AdWords and we spent it with Facebook and Instagram and so on. Now, I just wanted to say another thing is that I said before, very casually, if you pay for growth, you, you sometimes end up with really horrible customers that aren't engaged, uh, that, that you know don't do a lot of transactions or don't participate in, in your network and don't refer you. And so you don't just want to pay for customers. So what we found is if we spent a lot of money, let's say $20,000 in a day, then we would get lots of customers. Let's say you paid 20 bucks for an acquisition, you get a thousand customers. That's amazing, right? Those thousand customers would be the worst customers ever. If we paid... Uh, say $100 or $200 in a day, then we could acquire 10 or 20 customers that were actually awesome. They were the right target customer, uh, they were engaged customers, and they became our biggest referrers. So what we found is that there's not a direct correlation between the amount of money that you spend on growth and the quality of the customer that you acquire. And that's how you ensure success is that you do experiments to find the right type of customer at the the right acquisition price and then over the longer term, mid to long term, you can assess the quality of those customers. Right. We're gonna we're gonna come back to the experiments part, but I wanna ask Judy, um, you know, setting up the startup network uh, and all the partnerships that took place there led to its amazing growth, right? So and and you were at the helm uh, of those amazing partnerships. How did you approach that, especially being new to the space? Um, and you did some amazing large, big brand partnerships. Can you share a little bit of insight into those uh, avenues? For sure. And everyone probably just saw me emphatically nodding as Dad would, as Tom was talking about all of the partnership stuff because he's he's really given you gold there. You know, um, 
like if I was to sort of give you the the highlights version of that, like you have to do something the partners can't. Like that's 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 the thing, you know. Otherwise, why would why would they work with a brand that they don't know, that their customers don't know, that you know has all sorts of risk attached to it? Like they're a large established incumbent with everything to lose, and you're a small nimble startup with nothing to lose. So you know the the risk appetite and the ways of working are so different that for there to be a great gel in terms of the partnership for that big brand to go out of their way to partner with you and to work with you. You really have to be either doing something that they can't do. You you are doing something so much faster. You are doing something so much cheaper, or you're doing something so much more innovatively. Um, and so that really is the trick. Uh, and the the thing that I see a lot of founders get wrong is that um, having a partnership is almost like something just to tick in the box. It's almost like ah. Oh, they're going to sell us for us. We don't have to do anything. We've got a partnership with this big thing. They've got a whole network of clients and they'll just put us on their website or put us in their app store or put us in their sort of, you know, um, software ecosystem. And before you know it, you know, like we don't have to do anything, you know, like the, like the, this partnership, this company is going to sell our product to their customers for us. And the reality is it just doesn't work like that. Um, you still like once you have that partnership, once you've done everything that Don's told you to do around like taking, you know, taking a risk and, you know, having those 100 conversations to get that one partner. Once you've got that contract, once you've got that agreement, your partner has actually become a second category of customer that you now have to serve. And what founders often get wrong is that they don't resource that adequately. It sort of becomes, a, oh, we won that contract, we've signed that, you know, that agreement, and now let's pivot back to customers and product. But now what you've actually built is really, I think about it more as a diversified revenue stream. And so now you just have another channel that you're managing, managing the channel of growth through partnerships, and you're now managing the channel of growth through word of mouth and product-led growth, and you're probably also still managing growth through your paid advertising channels. And so, you know, depending on the value of each of those customers, the volume you're getting from that channel, and what your churn is looking like from each of those channels, it's going to guide you as to what the appropriate resourcing is going to be in terms of your people and your time and your money that you're putting on them. So, like they're just kind of the things I wanted to call out from what Dom had to say. Um, but absolutely, like from my experience, I've, I've had to learn that in the startup big role because being a community-led organization in a not-for-profit as well, you certainly can't do it all by yourself. So even though I'm not a founder, um, you know, I feel like a bit of an imposter whenever someone calls me an entrepreneur because I've technically never built my own business. I've always built other people's businesses. But, you know, like that, that really is the key and you have to build on the shoulder of the giants. And so one example I'd love to give is actually in a previous role at Inventium. It's a boutique innovation consultancy. It uses organizational psychology and neuroscience to teach larger established organizations how to innovate. And when I first joined that business, we were three people working out of a co-working space. Uh, and, you know, Inventium is a bit of a weird name, you know, like it doesn't sort of stack up next to Google, next to Lego, you know, next to Blackmores, next to Lendlease, next to these big like ASX 250 brands with global, you know, headcount across the world, but they were our clients. And so how did this, you know, sort of boutique, you know, firm get clients like that with such credibility? And again, like it really came down to the fact that we knew our shit. Sorry, excuse. I hope I can swear on this podcast, but we knew like we were adding a huge amount of value because we were taking all of the latest scientific research on how to innovate, how to protect yourself from the disruption of startups and bringing that into the businesses through structure, resourcing, strategy, training, you know, KPIs, et cetera, and from the top down. 
And so we were genuinely solving like those customers' problems. Um, but again, like it was B2B and we're a small brand, even though we did we did grow to become uh, quite large and we were on the AFR Fast Growth Companies list during my time there, which was an awesome achievement. But one of the best things we ever did was pitch the AFR, uh, which it was actually Boss Magazine at the time, which doesn't exist anymore, to co-create a competition to run a, run a list uh, in their publication of the most innovative companies. Because we knew that this media publication had a big brand, it had the uh, audience and the readership of like prospective clients that we wanted to work with that we think we could add value to. But if we were to run our own competition, you know, Inventium's most innovative companies list, no one care. You know, like no one that doesn't have the prestige, it doesn't have the gravitas, you know, no one wants to be featured on that list, who cares? Um, But people definitely want to be featured on the boss or now it's the AFR, most innovative companies list that has gravitas, that has readership, that has audience. And so what the AFR could do is publish that list, promote that list and talk about the companies and would also give them basically a whole ream of stories to talk about, hundreds of companies with hundreds of products and innovations and progress that they could talk about. Uh, and now um, what Inventium could do is all of the methodology. We could do all of the analysis, all of the research, the assessment. We could use all of our frameworks, everything that we knew to grade those companies and rank them. So we could do something that AFR couldn't do and they could do something that we couldn't do. And it was an incredibly successful partnership for us. We got more than 80% of our new clients came through every year from the AFR Most Innovative Companies List competition because guess what? You got a low score? Who knows how to help you? Who knows how to improve your score the next time you go around? You know, like, and, and, and as a result of entering, you got this full report where you could find out, like, where you're scoring lower. And, like, by the way, here's all these programs and, and consulting work that we do to help you improve. So next year you get a better score. So, like, that's an example um, of, of where we were certainly punching above our weight in terms of that brand partnership. But over the, over the years, it then gave us those clients and then those clients and those brands sold us. Hey, I wasn't giving you a thumbs down. I think it was just the Zoom sort of AI or something that came up with it. <laughs> That's a bad suddenly, example. Oh, yeah, game on a dog. <laughs> it was a really good one. But I, don't know, I don't know what Have you ever wondered how fast-growing companies 2, 3 and even 10x their annual revenue? They have something more than just a sales plan. They have a sales operating system that is the engine that drives the revenue function for their business. If you need more qualified leads, if you're struggling to nurture deals, if you need to close more deals faster, or even if you need to hire A-plus salespeople, click the link in this podcast episode or visit growforum.io forward slash apply to have a chat with Luigi and myself to see how we can help you. Now back to the show. First off there, Juju, uh, I, I, I know you're not a founder, but you are kick-ass at what you do. So kudos on that side, right? <laughs> Secondly, you probably almost saw me headbutt the mic when you mentioned at the start there about the secondary character because uh, of customer, sorry, because I experienced that firsthand. So I just want to share a quick story because it was the most one of the most painful experiences and, and costly uh, to, to my business at the time. So I was running a tech company was in the business travel space. We had got investment from a major player in the US. They were a listed company called Travelport. They had 10,000 agents. So 10,000 potential channel partners um, that we could sell our business to that would then go sell to all their customers. So 
we thought billion dollar company overnight. Let's we're on. Um, but lo and behold, they were, for lack of a better word, and this is recorded, but you know I'm not there no more. They were absolutely hopeless. Um, it, it created an absolute bottleneck for the company. It almost crippled us, where we had to try and serve the uh, agents to try and educate them on what we were doing, how we were doing it, how we were different, um, and we're getting nothing in return. So it completely, we didn't resource for it because we didn't think it was going to be such a, a bottleneck and such a selling problem for us. And, you know, it, it deterred probably uh, to Dom's point earlier and to yours even earlier, uh, Judy, it uh, deterred, it, it consumed a lot of our time, which as a growing company, time just as much as money is your probably biggest asset. Um, so it derailed our focus and made us look at things that weren't core uh, to the business. And then yeah. to the point of, you know, having something that Travelport didn't have, like they had tons of cash, but they couldn't move fast enough. Uh, they had a lot of red tape internally. So they saw us as a vehicle to, we had a product that they didn't have and we can get to market faster than them. We could be their sort of rogue company on the side that did crazy things. Um, yeah, I love that. So Judy just posted a comment. Don't be afraid to fire your partners and customers because they can cripple you. Love it. Yeah. And then to your question earlier about, you know, what are the sort of first steps? I think it might be worth just giving another example that uh, we did a partnership with Afterpay and when we partnered with them, they weren't, you know, the Afterpay that we all know now that's, you know, so huge and all the rest of it. It took a number of years to go from where they were to, you know, to becoming such a huge business. But it all came about because one of our our very first employee, one of our um, uh, top people, is is uh, our chief product officer, Anson Parker. And Anson had sort of been um, shopping on the weekend or whatever, and had an afterpay experience. And he came back uh, to the office and said to me, "Hey, Dom, do you happen to know anyone at Afterpay? Because I reckon we could really do something awesome with them." And so Anson and I literally were walking around the city, and we could see the Afterpay logo plastered on all these merchants on the on the shops and everything. And so we said, you know, where's their office? So it's in Queen Street. So we'll just we'll just literally drop in. And so we had the guts to actually walk into the Afterpay office. And then in the foyer, I'm going through my address book trying to find if I know anybody who works at Afterpay. Turns out I didn't, but the CEO at Pin Payments uh, did. So I reached out to him and he put me in touch with this guy, David, who isn't there anymore, but he was there at the time. And so while we're in the foyer, we uh, sort of found somebody that we knew in the building and then we pinged them. And got them to come down and say g'day. We never left the foyer. They never took us into their office. Who scared with some sort of stalkers or something? But what we did is show them a little demo that Anson had put together over the weekend based on his own personal experience. Now, that takes a lot of guts. First of all, to walk into the building of a public company. Secondly, to find someone who works there. And then thirdly, to actually in the meeting pitch them that your idea that you've had. And so they became one of our, uh, our very first partners at UP. And we announced during the UP launch that we had a partnership with Afterpay. And now we've got... I don't even know how many, but it'd be probably be tens or hundreds of thousands of customers who are using Afterpay with UP and getting all these benefits and experiences that we created. In a similar way, I will say that we thought because of their huge growth, we thought that we would also be able to piggyback off that. Turns out that doesn't work that way. And we had to put a lot of energy and work collaboratively together with Afterpay into growing the market for them in terms of the banking side and, and growing the market for us in terms of the Afterpay side. So, uh, so yeah, so I think I just wanted to share that little anecdote because you have to actually be, uh, you know, have have the fortitude, but also the confidence to be able to approach those the branded partners if you wanted to, um, you know, if you want to sort of create those channel relationships. And one just built on that, having been on the other side of the table, because um, 
Ironically, the partnership work at Startup Victoria wasn't as difficult as it may seem because we had what a lot of our partners wanted, which was the founder audience. You know, we were the go, we are the go-to destination for founders in Australia. And so if you want to talk to a founder, you've got a product or a service that you want to sell to a founder, like we're the best channel to go through. And so um, we were actually almost, even though we weren't an Afterpay or a Google, we weren't a big brand like that. In our sector and with our audience, we we are the go-to. We were the go-to. So a lot of those, like I've been on the other side of companies trying to sell us and we were quite selective with who we would um, team up with as a partner because, you know, even though we're neutral and a not-for-profit, anything we put in front of a founder, we basically have to vouch for it. We're not going to waste founders' time, right? Like we're not going to put a poor quality tool or service in front of them. And so we went through quite a rigorous process of assessing people and the ones that always stood out to us that was like a no-brainer were the worst ones were the ones where it was like, oh, yeah, we're just going to put some stuff in your newsletter. Can you just let us have an EDM feature, you know, like a few times a year um, and like here's a referral link. And, you know, it was just very basic and very transactional and clearly they were there just to tick a marketing box. The ones who really stood out to us were the ones who – had done their research on our audience, knew exactly who they wanted to speak to, knew exactly how their product or their service solved a problem for our founders, and they came up with something creative, they came up with something innovative for how they were going to deliver on that value promise. And it wasn't about selling. It was about solving a problem for our members, and that just always made it easy. You know, um, it was just an absolute no-brainer. So, for example, you know, we would have a partner like, uh, like you know, um, like Google for entrepreneurs, for example, they weren't going to try and sell, you know, Google cloud services. They were going to open up the books to all of the senior tech people within their company and provide office hours mentoring for founders. So anytime they had a question about something that they couldn't solve, you could go right to the expert and have that resolved for you, which like if you're trying to get tech support for Google normally, like good luck, um, you're not going to be able to speak to like a, a head of engineering or anything like that. So like that's a great example of where they were doing something truly different, truly unique that really spoke to our founders. And also then for us, like level up our brand because then for us, we didn't have to pay for those people to come and do office hours. We just had to do a partnership, which they paid us for, you know, and it was something that we could actually add value for. So yeah, that's a little bit, I guess, on the other side of the table, what it looks like and feels like. That was great. I just took some notes myself there uh, for something I have to do. So that was a great duty. Uh, Dom, I want to go back to earlier conversation on, you know, running tests. It's something that, you know, we always look at doing within growth forum and it's like what tests can we run to, you know, see if this is going to work in a particular market. Do you have a framework uh, that you share within the businesses that you work with or even within up and your previous experiences on how you approach running growth tests within the businesses? I mean, we don't have a framework. I think it's, um, and I'm sure there's some around, but I think it's actually quite different in each of the different businesses that I've been involved in. And for the businesses that we've been helping with strategy or advising or channel sales or growth, uh, it's different than what it has been at UP. Um, one of the things I talk about at UP is um, uh, almost a, a sort of um, an oxymoron. Like I, I talk about um, the excellence of everything. Up is a really unique player in the banking sector because we have the very best technology, the very best security, the very best design, the very best features, the very best price. Like we have everything. And so it's it's sort of easier for us to compete and to create those growth loops 
uh, because we're not actively selling. We're doing what Judy was just talking about is that we're providing a benefit. The benefit of up is that for the first time ever, you can save money. Or for the first time ever, you understand where your money's going and where you're spending it. Or for the first time ever, you feel financially literate or you don't have to use an Excel spreadsheet. And so really what we're selling is that emotional peace of mind for young Australians who want to be better with money. So we're not actually going out and competing against other banks to sell a bank account. And and that's one of the tricks, I think, of creating that sort of product-led growth is that creating a product that is has some unique selling proposition, something that is different compared to your competitors, and then you're not actually directly competing. You're not selling the same thing that they're selling. What they're competing then on is price or feature parity. And it's pretty much the Android, iOS sort of story. Once you're in the Apple ecosystem, you've sort of got all the things that you need and you feel proud of what you've got and you're happy to show off your new phone and all this sort of stuff. When, when you're in the Android ecosystem, you know, you've got to pull together a whole bunch of different things and probably you bought it because it was cheaper or probably you bought it because it had a better camera. And so, so, so suddenly, you know, um, uh, all the Android participants, whether it's Samsung or Google, whoever, they're competing on either price or product, you know, the features, whereas Apple are just bringing an ecosystem play. And so it doesn't matter whether you're an Apple fan or, or a Samsung fan or, or a Google fan. I'm giving that example because it's a really well-known one that people can associate with. It's similar for Up. If you're any of the big four banks, you have to bring out a new feature or lower your price in order to compete with us. But what do we do? We provide excellence in everything. We've got the best design. We've got the best technology, the best security, the best features, the most unique things. And so I think that it's not so much of a framework. I would say it's more a fastidious focus on delivering something that we don't have to sell that almost sells itself. If you can do that with your product, whether it's a, a widget that you're creating or whether it's a software tool that you're building, or whether it's a channel partnership that you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to set up, um, if you can create something that's unique and something that people want, then I think that 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 almost is the framework. <laughs> if you know yeah, that. I love that. Uh, Judy, anything to add to on that? No, I thought it was awesome. I was actually just thinking we we spent a lot of time talking about um, community, product-led growth, partnerships, and some a lot of like good tips and tricks in there. We've almost done. Um, inadvertently you know uh i guess like by not talking about paid advertising i think that's showing our bias you know to which channels we think add the most amount of value but the reason why historically paid advertising and as dog mentioned like you know and in my experience as well like we used we've bought lists before and you know funnels, uh, you know ads and whatever that you just don't see the same lifetime value from a customer they churn a lot more quickly um, they're harder to convert. The CAC is higher. Like it's just a harder channel. Like it's it really is a lot harder than everything we've spoken about before. Um, but one shining light in like the paid advertising and like customer acquisition through digital ads and through online marketing and through organic growth, where they haven't yet discovered you. You know, all of those customers that aren't in a partner network, that aren't in a word of mouth network. Um, there's a company that we've just invested in called Heatseeker.ai. Uh, and they're awesome because they're solving that problem for founders and for high growth companies who want to find new customers for with an existing product, or they want to be able to test new product features to grow their existing existing customer base. And so, what they've basically built is a tool that uses technology, it uses AI to basically run a huge amount of experiments in market on both real customers that they find through social networks, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, etc but also on artificial personas that are created based on the knowledge that they can glean from who your existing customers are. They can run multiple experiments to see 
not just what product features are going to work, but also how does the language land? Like, you know, and so test what your language market fit is in, in those ads that you're running. And so reducing failure rates of those ads, so saving you money, you know, by not spending, uh, you know, money with Meta that isn't actually getting you conversion. Um, and then by the time you're ready to actually run a paid ad, you know that it's already been tested and you know that it's going to get you a high conversion rate when you put it in market. So um, that tool's really awesome. It's a pre-seed company. It's brand new. Uh, they've just released their alpha version of the product. So um, it's something that if you're if you're curious about paid advertising and it's something you haven't had much success with so far, like I do recommend checking it out. Um, obviously, we have a bias. We've invested in Heatseeker. We see its potential, but I definitely recommend um, having a look. I'll I think the bias. I think the bias is um, is founded. Um, you know, it's grounded in 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 the success that we've had with Pin, the success that we've had with uh, with Up and the success that we've had with other businesses. I will say this, like Heatseeker automates and makes and accelerates a lot of the things that we would do manually. So at PIN, for example, we would run an ad and then we would uh, test it on a small audience, see how it performs, and then we would tweak it. We would take customer feedback on sign-up and then we'd incorporate that feedback into our uh, sales process. Uh, we would go through different channels and then we would measure those channels against each other and see how they perform. So in terms of that sort of your question earlier about testing, we were doing all that sort of stuff manually. What uh, HeatSeeker does is make all of that happen lightning fast and with AI bots uh, and then with real people as well. And so that sort of gives you a really good foundation, a good grounding. And I was saying before about the excellence of everything with, with Up and I sort of, I never got to the, the, the sort of crescendo, <laughs> which was the question about testing. Um, we typically will do three or four different iterations of things at, uh, at, at, at Up uh, and whether it be um, the features that we're selling in the product the price that we're trying. Like when we did our referral bonus, we actually named it. We brand everything. So we branded the referral. Instead of calling it the up referral program, we call it hook up a mate. Um, and so suddenly that language makes it interesting for the customer. And what we found is that we were going on the weekend to barbecues or going out to a movie or whatever it is, and people were asking all the time. I would walk down Collins Street or Martin Place and people would high five me and and say, uh, you know, uh, you're that up guy, right? And we just get talking about it. And we realize, well, how do you actually make that into a digital product? How do you make it so that you can hook up your mate if you're at a barbecue or if you're walking down the street? Um, you know, you're at the university and, and, and you're chatting with some mates and suddenly uh, you want to show them your bank account. It doesn't make sense because you don't want them to see all your money and everything. So so how do you create this mechanism for hooking up a mate? Um, and, 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 you know, by running small tests, we were able to see, well, what would happen if we paid $5 to the referrer? What would happen if we paid $5 to the referee? What would happen if we paid $5 to each? What if it was $2.50? What if it was $10? How, how does that work? And so we would do that over and over and over and over again. And the benefit of Heatseeker is you can sort of do all that sort of stuff. And I love what Judy just said about language market fit. Because if you said, um, here's our referral bonus versus we'll give you some cash for hooking up a mate, what's the difference in that language? And how does that impact your conversion rate? And how does it impact the quality of the people that you can converting or that you're onboarding? Um, and and you don't really know the answer to that until you try it. And so we tried it with up in production in in real life. Like we, we literally tried it, and then we would iterate and improve. And it's taken us many years to get that program really humming. Whereas, uh, yeah, the idea with Heatseeker is you can do all that sort of digitally, virtually before you have to uh, before you have to actually do it in production. Yeah, that's so pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's great. It's a great way. Look again, it's a massive time saver. And the cost in it, in it to actually find out those findings uh, could be in excess of ten, twenty thousand dollars later before you work out what's working and what's not. Um, I love 
as bad as this sounds. Talking about failure. It's something that, you know, many people shy away from. Everyone loves talking about all the things that help them win and all the great shiny things that have worked for them. Um, but I, I love trying to help, um, especially our community, shortcut their way to grow success and, you know, so they can live a better life and support their family better. So yeah. I'd, I'd love to understand uh, from you both, you know, what have been, say, the top two biggest failures in your growth journey uh, you know, to date, and what would be the key lessons from those? I mean, there's so many failures. I, 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 we did this um, in the spirit of um, uh, swearing. <laughs> we, 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 we did this um, event called the Fuck Up Knots, and it's just purely about what did you, what were the mistakes you made, and what did you learn? Exactly the question that you've asked. And what I thought I'd do when they asked me if I'd be a guest speaker is I, I you know, cause people, someone actually tweeted, a venture capitalist actually tweeted saying, oh, why would you have Dom doing this? I'm paraphrasing, but he's the worst kind of person to ask because everything he touches turns to gold. You know, everything he does is successful. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm a 25 year overnight success. You know, like everything that we've put into the businesses that we've founded has been through blood, sweat and tears. It's been hard yards, you know, uh, businesses failing, products failing, uh, customers getting grumpy and irate, uh, even people suing us. <laughs> you know, we've been really through the school of hard knocks to get to the point of being successful. So what I started doing uh, when they asked me if I would present it is, is coming up with a list of all the failures that we've had uh, in the last, you know, decade or so. I started an Excel spreadsheet and when I got to over 125 failures, uh, I thought there's no way in five minutes I can talk about that many, that many things. So I need to narrow it down. So what I did is I narrowed it down to the top three or the top five um, and I still went for about 25 minutes. I ran way over time. Um, so I would just wanted to say right from the, right from the get go, talking about failure, embracing failure, understanding how other people have failed and then uh, trying to apply that, um, learning to, to your own experience is absolutely critical. But I will say this, and I started by saying this at the fuck up nights is that it doesn't make sense to just learn from other people's failures. I can tell you some stories and I will, but that doesn't make sense. What makes sense is to learn from the school of hard knocks yourself. The only thing that you're going, the only way that you're going to get that uh, knowledge and experience is to is through practical implementation by actually trying to do it. So running those sales tests, uh, running those onboarding experiments, uh, trying different products, trying different pricing, and then each time you fail, then you can turn that into either a learning experience or if it doesn't fail and it turns to be a success, well then you keep doing what you're doing because you know you want to you want to keep uh, seeing that level of success and building on it and iterating and improving. So, so yeah, so that's just my philosophy first to, to, to put out there. And then in terms of a, a couple of failures, well, we've had monumental failures. We've had um, products that we've built and brought to market. One of the better known ones, uh, sorry, one of the better ones that's not known is uh, a story I'll tell about Up. When we first partnered with, um, pre-Up, it was before we created Up. Uh, we, when we first partnered with Bendigo Bank, um, we, 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 we had this idea uh, and our company was called Ferocia. And so we had this idea that we wanted to build a digital bank and be the first digital bank, you know, the launch in Australia and all this sort of stuff. And so that was great. But then we found out you needed a banking license. And so the first problem that we had is we started going down the path of trying to build a bank without actually having the regulatory stuff in order. We didn't know all the details about what, what you needed to, to, to launch a bank. And we very quickly found out that not only do you need a banking license, but you need a couple of hundred million dollars because you need a hundred million dollars in reserve. And then you need another hundred million dollars to run the operation. So as a small group of say, I don't know, 10 or 15 people at the time, we realized that was probably out of our reach. So what we did to remedy that failure is that we partnered with Bendigo Bank, one of the greatest partnerships we ever did. 
um, that partnership with Bendigo started as a vendor where we were building software and they were paying us for it. But then it turned into a joint venture where we're 50-50 partners in a joint venture, which eventually ended up in them acquiring our business. So that one mistake, that one sort of failure where we tried to do something without actually you know, fully being aware of how to do it, turned into a 10-year overnight success where they ended up acquiring us for over $100 million. So so, you know, like I think you can turn those failures into successes. But anyway, the failure I wanted to talk about was during that partnership, we were building uh, this uh, mobile and internet banking. Now, mobile back in 2011, 2012, wasn't really that big a thing. You know, I think the iPad had just been released and the iPhone had been out since 2007, 2008. So, uh, you know, mobile wasn't really the big thing then. Um, and, uh, and we were building a web-based version of the mobile, of the, of the, of the banking platform. And we hadn't thought yet to build a mobile version. Now, we did it all with paper and pen. So the good thing that we did was rather than building the software and spending maybe millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars and then having a failure, we did it all as a paper prototype. And then we got the bankers in and the bankers came into our office, which is a little office on the top floor of a pub, the provincial hotel. It was pretty cool. Um, And we got the bankers in and the bankers saw our prototype and said, oh, no, 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 no. What about this mobile thing? And so we've actually made a mistake because we started building technology for the browser before we realized that actually mobile is where it's at. Now, up today is the first and only, still the only, mobile-only bank in Australia. Now, you're not going to say that that's the entire reason that we've been successful, but the growth of the mobile phone, the adoption of the iPhone and subsequently Android, and having a computer in your pocket and being able to do your banking not once or twice in a month, but over 100 times a month, is actually that growth curve we piggybacked along that by being a mobile-only bank. If we hadn't have made the mistake of going down the path of building out a prototype uh, for the web and then being told by the bankers that this is not quite right and we really should be looking at mobile, and they started building their own mobile platform, and then they said, you know, could you guys build something better? And they had 75,000 users on their mobile platform that they built themselves. And so our goal was to get 100,000 to beat that 75, and obviously we did. But the mistake that we made was thinking that um, mobile wasn't here to stay and that we were going to focus on building a, a web platform. So they're probably, you know, small mistakes that we made. I'll just give you one bigger mistake to sort of, you know, to, I guess, wow some of the people is that we built a business, the grains business, and it was to help farmers sell their grain. We did the big partnership that I talked about with the uh, bulk handler um, and our company was only 16 months old. And the mistake that we made was that we sold the company for too much money, too quickly, too early to the wrong partner. And the partner that acquired us was no cultural fit at all. Within five weeks of the acquisition, they were terminating people. Within five months of the acquisition, I think there was only two or three of us that were left. Uh, and we were 32 people when they acquired us. And then they ended up suing us uh, and not paying us. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's a horrible situation where we had this great opportunity, this great business, and we sold it. Not necessarily – the sale itself wasn't the problem. The problem was who we sold it to. So, so we saw, there was a complete cultural mismatch between a public company and then a, 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 a sort of an aspiring disruptive startup business. And those two, they didn't really gel very well together. Um, and so that was one of the biggest mistakes we've made in our lives. And it cost us uh, five years of uh, turmoil at the mortgage our houses to pay for the lawyers and all this stuff. Like one of the things I'll just say to people, we don't talk about it a lot because it's a really horrible experience. But when you get sued, you don't ask to be sued and you don't really have a choice. Once you've been sued, you have to protect yourself and get lawyers to, to, to fight to prove that you didn't do anything wrong. And of course, we didn't lose. We, you know, we fought and, and, until, uh, until it went away. But, uh, and it was quite frivolous. But 
um, uh, that, that was a terrible, horrible time. And that mistake that we made was to sell the business to the wrong company where there was no cultural uh, match. And, that, and, and you know, if you are a startup founder and you're building a business and you're looking at M&A or you're looking at acquisition or exit, um, you know, you really want to try and do the due diligence and get that right because it ruined five years of our lives. Yeah, that's painful and costly. Because like you said, you've got to defend yourself and it still costs you money, so the lawyer's winning. Um, Judy, on, on yours, and then we can dive into our it's a question that I can see starting to come through. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I'm conscious of time and I could, I yep. could just like time, I could tell you a million failures, <laughs> you know, like of things that I've done wrong and things that haven't worked and, you know, things that don't go well. Like I think I'll spare you, I'll spare you the details of every way that I've failed. But like the, the thing that I think is important for me on this topic is that you do have to learn from it, right? Like, and I know that that sounds obvious, you know, no point just failing for the sake of failing, like failure like I, I've had to learn, you know, over the last like 20 years of, uh, you know, a, a working career that I have, I have to love failure and I genuinely do now. Like that's the reality. Like I've had to learn that habit at first when I was younger, failure felt like a really bad thing. Like I had personally failed. It was attached to my identity. But now I've learned that failure makes me awesome because failure makes me better and failure makes me more successful the next time I do something. And so like failure actually serves me and serves my agenda to achieve what I want to achieve. And so like changing my mindset around failure was really what I think changed things for me and helps me be more awesome, <laughs> you know, in, in my work and in my life um, is genuinely being obsessed for it. So just having that true hunger for feedback. And one other tip is that I often um, Sometimes failures are obvious and you don't need to unpack it. You just grab the learning and move on. Um, but sometimes failures are a little bit more opaque, like where you don't understand why you failed or where you went wrong. Um, and if it is if it is something that's quite important, it can be useful to unpack it with other people, whether it be the customer that you failed with, the partner that you failed with, the employee you failed with, the business partner you failed with, like just having it out, you know, and, and seeing what went wrong, like conducting a post-mortem. You know, that's something that Zappos made famous, you know, was to do the do the retro, do the postmortem, pull it apart. What could you learn? Grab those learnings and then move on. Um, and, you know, doing that by yourself with your team, with your co-founder, those postmortem sort of rituals can be really useful. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you both uh, for those failure lessons there. We can go on probably for days about that. Uh, we've probably got time for just the one question, but if anyone else has questions, please put them through and I'll make sure we come back to with answers. Uh, so one question from Mark, Judy and Dom loved your riff on the tension between best and fastest. Can you unpack that a little bit more? How do you resolve, embrace uh, that tension as you ship products and services? We've all heard that phrase, like perfect is the enemy of done. Like that's mm. just the truth, you know? And so it's like, it's good enough to like, basically the threshold should be, is this going to tell me what I need to learn? Like, is it, is it good enough to tell me what I need to learn? And is it good enough to to match up to our brand and our values? If that's the case, ship it. doesn't have to be perfect. And then, yeah, like particularly in the, in the lens of growth, like what you're looking for is learning. And so as long as it passes the threshold of it's going to tell us what we need to learn, ship it. And if you set yourself a quality bar, then you can think about it like a matrix. And the matrix is quite simple. There's, 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 there's a few different possibilities. One possibility is that you're first to market. And first to market helps you build a customer base and build brand and build awareness and and, and build some uh, level of authority in, in, in the particular market segment that you're operating in. So first to market is really good. Let's give that a tick. The, the, the second point is being the best. The best is better than being the first. And Apple have proven that time and time and time again. 
um, Tesla. You know, there's lots of companies that have been, you know, second, third, fourth to, to market, but have done it better than anyone else. So we better put a tick over there. So now you can start seeing the matrix is forming. Obviously, if you can be the best in anything, then that's great. And that's really where you should be focused. Obviously, being the first has these benefits of getting the mind share and building the brand and those sort of things. So obviously, what what would make sense is one plus one equals three. If you can be the best and the first, and you can maintain your quality quotient, you know, that whatever your bar is for quality, uh, and you can get to market swiftly enough that you know, you're iterating and being comfortable in your ability to continue to improve, then actually doing both is, is awesome, right? So I wouldn't say one is better than the other. They're both awesome, but then doing them both is even more awesome. So I think that um, you know, the size of your team, the product you're building, the market you're operating in, the competitive environment, how much capital you have, all those things are going to go into the decision as to whether or not we should keep building and then release that second, third, fourth, or fifth, but be absolutely the best, or whether we should actually launch first. I think they're both um, really important things to consider before you just uh, you know sort of jump in the deep end. Fantastic. Well, I can see there's another question here, but we'll come back to that. I want to be respective of everyone's time. Uh, thank you, Judy. Thank you, Dom, uh, for your time. And thank you for everyone that, that uh, carved out an hour of their day to listen to these two legends. Uh, we've got many more events coming out throughout the year. Uh, um, don't know if they're going to match up to this one because this was quite up there. So, but thank you all for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the day and stay cool if you're in Melbourne. Yes, David, and thank you so much for having us. And yeah, as we as we opened at the top, if there's anything we didn't answer for you or you want to sort of go a little bit deeper on anything that Dom and I mentioned, please, you know, make friends with us on the internet. Um, Dom's handle, he's put in the chat, I'll put mine as well. He's at Dom Pim, I'm at Fast Track Judy, and Euphemia is at Euphemia underscore invest on most channels. So, Follow us, you know, say good day. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, just ignore those uh, negative, those thumbs downs. <laughs> I, I never do a thumbs down. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, thanks very much, David. I really appreciate it. And thanks everyone for your time. Uh, reach out anytime. More than happy to help. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.